So, awesome. Hey, you got your Bibles? We're going to be in Judges chapter 4 and 5. And uh, while you're making your way there, a couple of announcements, a couple things to let you know about. Uh, first one is this. We kind of, we didn't, we didn't plan it, but we did like a, a spontaneous last week, like a week of prayer. So um, we're going to keep going, all right? We're here each night, um, Sunday to Sunday this coming week, and then... Um, um, Sunday night tonight and Wednesday night, we're going to be here at, from 7 till 8.30. We're going to just go a little bit longer and uh, have extended times of worship. So Greg's going to be leading us tonight, extended time of worship, Ron, on Wednesday night, and uh, we'll just be here each night of the week for prayer, okay? So I encourage you to come join us for that. And I said to the church this morning, I'm like, yeah, and maybe they'll extend lockdown for another two weeks, and we'll just keep going with prayer, okay? So whatever, we're just going to roll with it. It's a good time for us to be seeking the Lord as a church. And then the second thing I just wanted to remind you of is we're doing our youth class on Mondays at 3.15, and uh, we've been having lots of fun. And uh, tomorrow, so for the youth, I uh, just encourage you to bring out a friend and come join us. And uh, we're going to be talking about tolerance, tolerance and the culture of tolerance. And so we've been having fun talking about biblical worldview and how we apply the scriptures, we look out on the world, all right? So, sweet. In Judges chapter 4, we're going to look at chapter 5 to two chapters that deal with the same event, okay? So let's pray as we come to God's Word. Maybe I should go to Judges instead of Joshua. All right, let's pray. Lord, we just thank you this morning for this time that we could spend with you, with each other. I thank you, Lord, that you're here with us, and we welcome you thankful, Lord, that your word tells us where two or three come together in my name. There am I with you. So Jesus, welcome into your church. Jesus, this morning we acknowledge you're our pastor. You're the great shepherd of the sheep. We want to follow you, Lord. Come to meet with you. Come to worship you. Come to spend time in your word. And so, Lord, I just pray that we would sense your presence here with us this morning. I pray, God, that we would find strength and encouragement I pray, Lord, that we would sense that we're not alone. I pray, God, that you would drive out every fear in our hearts and in our lives. I pray, God, that you would drive out every anxiety, every worry. I thank you, Lord, that we don't need to be anxious for anything. I thank you, Lord, that you said we're of more value to you than the sparrows, and you look after them, you feed the birds of the air, and not one of them falls to the ground without you knowing and you said, how much more valuable are we than, than birds? So, Lord, we thank you that you love us. Thank you, Lord, that we can enjoy your presence and trust you. Thank you, Lord, that you've given us your word. And so we come to you this morning, Lord, for counsel. We come to you uh, to eat, Lord, asking you to feed us, to nourish us, to give us spiritual strength. Jesus, we look to you, the living word. This morning, speak to us, we pray, amen. Sweet, so yeah, we're in Judges chapter 4 and 5, and these two chapters deal with the same biblical account, same story. So just to set it up for you, the first chapter does this. The first chapter looks at it from a historical point of view and retells the account. The second chapter is, chapter 5 is a poem of worship to the Lord, praise to the Lord, retelling the story. So we're going we're gonna to move through both of them uh, today. And, and um, as we come to chapter four, um, 
we're watching the children of God continue on in this cycle again. As we've seen, it's like they turn from, they've come to the promised land where God has blessed them. They, they turn from worshiping the living God to serving the idol gods of the nations around them. And the Lord does this. He hands them over to their enemies. And as they experience oppression and distress and stress, they come to their senses and they call on the name of the Lord and God sends for them a judge, a human judge to come and bring them uh, uh, into deliverance from their enemies. And so as we come to this chapter, they've actually gone through 80 years of peace. They've had 80 years of peace. It's the longest period of peace in the time of the judges. And then this cycle of rebellion, idolatry, oppression begins again. So let's check it out. Verse one, it says this. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. Remember him, our left-handed assassin. Verse 2, and the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned at Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived at Herosheth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he had oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. So Ehud, our left-handed assassin, is gone, this godly judge. The people of Israel, once again, now a new generation, turned to worship the idol gods of the nations and the peoples around them. And and the cycle starts over. Now, this is the constant threat for every generation. This is the threat for our generation. Every single generation faces this reality that we can turn from worshiping the living God and worshiping the idols of those around us. And here in this story, in this account, the children of Israel gave themselves to sin. They gave themselves over to that which is evil in the sight of the Lord, and it's brutal. But the scripture actually says here that God sold them. He sold them over into the hands of this evil Canaanite oppressor, King Jabin. Now, the Canaanites were a people that were supposed to be driven out of the promised land already. Instead, instead of being driven right out, Ephraim, the tribe that was in their region, oppressed them. They, they forced them into um, you know, labor and controlled them until the Canaanites just continued to grow and they gained the upper hand on the children of Israel and the children of Israel turned to worship their gods. And so there's this king, his name's Jabin. He rules from the city of Hazor. Hazor happens to be one of the cities that Joshua already flattened when he came into the land. But because they let the Canaanites live, the city's been rebuilt. They've re-equipped themselves. They've accumulated a modern, powerful army. They've got 900 chariots of iron, which is a formidable force. It's like all the technological advances of warfare in that time, okay? These guys are powerful. And they were entrenched in the land of Israel, and they oppressed the people of God. And it's this old story that you see time and time again in the book of Judges here, where the people of God didn't complete that which God had called them to. They, they had incomplete victories over their enemies, and it comes back to bite them later on. It, this source of future defeat would be incomplete victories in the past. And so God's people come under the rule of this oppressor, and it's brutal. He's cruel, as we're going to see lots of. 
And it takes them 20 years of experiencing this oppression before they come to their senses. And they call out on the Lord again, on the name of the Lord for deliverance. Now, this is awesome because we know this. God has sent his deliverer. His deliverer for us is King Jesus. And and deliverance is available for all who would call on the name of the Lord. They can be set free from that which oppresses them. Sin and the punishment of sin, which is death, and we can have life and life eternal in Christ Jesus. After 20 years of oppression under this thumb, they call out, and the Lord raises up a judge. Now check it out, verse 4. Now Deborah, a prophetess, and the wife of Lapidoth was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between uh, Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinanoam, of, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. So we get introduced to this woman, Deborah, who is serving as a judge at this time. She's a wife, we read. We're going to read later that she's a mother, that she's a prophetess, that she is a judge, that she is known for her wise counsel. As a judge, people would come to her. She would sit in the seat of judgment. They would come to her with all sorts of legal issues, relational situations, social disputes. And Deborah would give wise counsel and judgment with regards to those situations. And it's interesting that actually in the Bible, she is the first prophet amongst the people of God since the time of Moses. Which is incredible to just stop and think about that, to go, what? There was nobody that served in the role of a prophet? There isn't one. And all the time from Joshua till this point, there has not been a prophet amongst the people of God. And God raises up this woman to be the voice of the Lord amongst the people of God. There's, in fact, three Old Testament women who were significant in their roles as prophetesses amongst the people of God. There was Miriam, the sister of Moses. There was this lady, Deborah, and Huldah in the book of Kings. And among all of these roles, here's Deborah, prophetess, judge, wife, mother. Amongst all of these roles, it's amazing that when, we're going to see this when we turn to chapter 5, that the role that she took the greatest pride and joy in was the role of mother, which is just really cool. It's amazing that her joy did not come from being a judge or a prophet. She enjoyed those things, I'm sure. She loved serving God in those ways. But the greatest calling on her life, she recognized it, was to shape the lives of her children. She enjoyed being a mother. You know, I, and I love this because, I mean, we know this, but it's good to just, again, see this from the scripture, that the role of a mom, the role of being mother is a high, high calling. In fact, there may be no higher calling because a mother has a very unique role in shaping the lives of her children to serve Jesus. I'm thankful for my mom. She's here. I'm thankful for her role in my life to shape me to serve Jesus. And there could be no, um, you know, greater contrast, I would say, between this woman and the oppressor that was oppressing the people of God because he was a monster. 
He held the tribes of Israel with an iron grip, and then you've got Israel, and they're led by a mother with a gentle hand. That's kind of the, the picture here, this oppressor and this one who's leading Israel. And it's in this way that Deborah is different from other judges, either before or after her, because she led Israel with wisdom, with character, whereas the other judges that we've seen so far and are going to see in the future don't have a lot of wisdom sometimes, and they led Israel with their might with their power. Like, remember Othniel, the son-in-law of Caleb? He came from a family of warriors. He led Israel in battle. Or you got Ahad, the left-hander, with his double-edged sword. Or you've got Shamgar with his ox goad. But Deborah counseled and guided the people of Israel, uh, not with weapons, but with a gentle hand. She led them beyond the battlefield. She wasn't a warrior. And so she sends, as God speaks to her, she sends and she calls for this man, Barak. And she passed on to him the word of God. She says, the Lord has commissioned you to go to battle. Go and gather 10,000 men. And God is going to give you victory over the army of Sisera. It's the word of prophecy, the word of the Lord. The Lord will give the enemy into your hand and you will gain victory. Get the troops together. Head to Mount Tabor. Go near the Kishon River and the Valley of Jezreel, and God is going to draw Sisera and his troops and his chariots to the river, and you are going to gain victory over him. Now, let's read what happens here in verse 8. It says this, Barak said to her, if you go with me, I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kadesh, and Barak called out Zebulon and Naphtali to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went with them. So here's this man, Barak. He's not a judge. He's not a prophet. He gets his orders from God's appointed leader. Deborah, and when he is given the word of God, he hesitates with regards to what God has called him to do, which I think we can understand that. Can you understand that? Do you ever have hesitations when God calls you to do something? Of course, we all do, all the time. How many times, how many times would we say in our lives, we have not done what God called us to do, like, like every day? But what, what I want to encourage us with is this, and Barak needed to know this, but he didn't at this point in time, that God's commands are his enablements. That God, that the proper response to the word of God is faith, to trust him, to believe him, and then to respond in obedience. See, obedience is the fruit of faith in the word of God. And when we believe God at his word, he enables us, he empowers us, to do what he's called us to do and to obey his commands. This guy does not respond with faith to the word of God. He hesitates, which would probably be the reason why he's not in the role of leadership amongst the nation. He's trying to make his, his obedience to God conditional. And I would just say this, it's never a good spot when we're like negotiating with the Lord. Okay, Lord, well, I'll do it, but, and then we set the conditions on why we're going to do it or how we're going to do it. You know, when we negotiate with the Lord on issues of obedience, it leads to missteps in our life. I was, I was thinking, I didn't tell the, I was thinking, it was reminding me of the, uh, 
song from my childhood, I'm in the Lord's Army. Did anyone remember, ever remember that? <laughs> you know, I'm in the Lord's Army. Yes, sir. I'm too young to fly over land and sea. I'm too young to march in the infantry. I'm too young to ride in the cavalry. But I'm in the Lord's Army. Yes, sir. You guys remember that one? No? Okay, good. <laughs> Obedience. And Barak... It's interesting, he seems to have more confidence in the presence of Deborah uh, than in the word of God that she's delivered to him. And so he asks her, will you come with me? I'll do it, but you have to come with me. Now, I, I don't know, maybe it's not all that bad because she was a prophet. Maybe they needed a word from God in the midst of battle. It's like good to have the prophet there right in the midst of battle. So whatever's going on, she agrees. She's not like, you know, this is really wrong what you said, but she does say this. Because you've said it this way, God is going to take the honor from you and he is going to give the honor of this battle to a woman. So they go. Barak goes to his hometown. He pulls together a group of 10,000 men. Let's read. And we get introduced to this other character, verse 11. Now Heber, the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and he had pitched his tent as far away as the, as the oak at Zanim, which is near Kadesh. So this character gets introduced into the story. His name is Heber. He's a Kenite. Now the Kenites, like we just read here, were descendants of Moses' father-in-law. So they came with the children of Israel into the land of promise, but they weren't Israelites. They were Gentiles. And uh, they lived separately amongst the people of Israel. And we're, we're going to read here as we get into the further into the story that the Kenites actually had uh, made an arrangement. They had a friendship with the Canaanites. So you kind of got God's people over here, the oppressor over here, they're oppressing God's people. And in the middle is this group of Kenites that are kind of friendly to both sides. But the name Heber means this, and this is why this guy's introduced to this story. His name means crossed over. He had if you read there, he separated himself from his own brothers and he crossed over to near Kadesh, meaning this, though he was a Kenite, though he was a Gentile, he had joined the people of God. He joined the family of God. So we'll, we'll come back to this. Verse 12, let's check out verse 12. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinanom, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron and all the men who were with him from Herosheth Hagayim to the river Kishon, and Deborah said to Barak, up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army of Herosheth Hagayim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. So we'll just keep moving through this story, get a feel for what's going on here. So you got the Canaanites. They're dependent upon their chariots of iron to give them the advantage that they needed over Israel. Really, like if you think about it, you know, a man on foot versus an iron chariot pulled by horses, there's no match, right? It's like, just run them over. Like, probably every chariot's good for crushing 10 Israelites or more. And, 
And so it's like there was a major advantage for the enemy of God's people. But what they didn't know is this. And what we actually don't read here in this chapter is what we're going to find out in chapter 5. That God worked natural disasters against Sisera and his army. In fact, there was rain. Rain started coming. There was a flash flood with the Kishon River. The banks of the river overflooded. The valley floor that was all nice and parched and dry for iron chariots turned to mud. And the chariots of iron sunk in the mud. We're going to read this later on. So all of a sudden, the advantage that the enemy had over God's people has now disappeared. They're like, they're trying to push iron chariots out of the mud. And, and let's just say iron chariots and mud, that's not a good combination. So it made Sisera's army an easy target for Israel's army. And that's exactly what happened. Israel wiped them out, mopped them up. And the Lord, it says the Lord routed the Canaanites. That means that the Lord threw them into terror and panic and confusion. And every advantage that had been theirs was taken from them. And they were defeated, which is kind of cool because the Canaanites worship Baal. They're worshipers of Baal. And who is the God of storms? Like, remember the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal and calling down fire and Elijah praying and rain coming down and that whole scene and the things that we learned? Well, these Canaanites serve the God of Baal. God, the living God is showing himself to be greater than the Canaanite God who his own people were serving. He's turning the hearts of his people back to them. And when Sisera, the, the general of the Canaanites, sees what's going on, his own chariots bogged up in the mud... He recognizes the end is not going to be good for him. He gets out of his chariot and he begins to flee on foot. That's what the text tells us. So let's read on what happens here. Verse 17. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my Lord, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. Now remember, this is a household that's turned, they've crossed over. They've crossed over to God's people. So he turned aside to, to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here, say no. But Yael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand, and she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from his weariness. So he died. I, I, it's brutal, but I do like that it says she came softly. It kept reminding me, like, because Lisa, like, had this book, Love Comes Softly, or something like that. I know all you Christian ladies read those books. Love Comes Softly. Here, here she comes, soft beat, okay, with a hammer and a spike. So he died. <laughs> Verse 22. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Yael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent. There lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. So here, here's the story. The, the, the army of Israel is pursuing the Canaanites. Sisera recognizes what's going, he gets, going on. He gets out of his 
His chariot, he flees on foot, running for his life. He's probably headed for the city of his king, Jabin, Hazor, city of Hazor for safety. But exhaustion, weariness, being tired from the battle gets the better of him. And he knew that the Kenites were friendlies, and it seemed like a good place to take refuge. And so Heber's wife, Yael, comes out to meet him, and she invites him into her tent, which is not something a woman in that culture would do, like obviously, uh, into the tent of her husband. So he figured that he is safe. And so then we read here that he requests water, and then she gives him milk, and he goes to sleep, which is like, I mean, just think about this. Like, imagine being in battle or maybe, maybe you know, you do your fitness, your exercise, your sports, whatever you do, you go for your run or you do your aerobics or whatever it is. Like, it's, milk is about the last thing you come looking for when you head to refresh yourself, when you're weary from exhaustion and thirsty. Nobody, like, chugs the milk. They, they need water. But she gives him milk, we read here. Okay, she gives him milk, and then he goes to sleep. And then, just as the story goes, she picks up the tent peg and the hammer, and she drives it through his skull, and she kills him. Now, in, in Bedouin culture, it's actually the women who set up the tents. So, Yael knew how to use a hammer. It's like practically like a household tool for her, uh, like a household appliance. Uh, and with it, she kills this Canaanite general. And then, Barak, the leader of the people of God, the, their army, arrives, and she says, come into the tent, and he discovers that Deborah's word has come true, a woman has killed Sisera, and the glory is going to her. Now, uh, you read this, and you read a story like this from the Bible, and you're like, wow, this is really brutal, like tent pegs, skulls, it's pretty nasty. Um, and I think it's easy to go, well, was that right? Was that wrong? Um, and I guess here's my caution would be, like, lots of times when you read the Old Testament stories, one of the wrong things to do with them is to take the standards taught by Jesus in the New Testament and by the apostles and apply them to what was happening in those situations. This is war. This is like war. This is like God has raised up a judge and an army, and this is a judicial sentence against the oppressors of God's people. This is God bringing justice. And so sometimes it's uncomfortable to read these things, but the, these, this man, Cicero, we're going to read on here in a, in a bit. We're going to get a sense of how wicked he was. This is an evil oppressor of the people of God. And God, uh, the people of God cried out to him, and he raised up a deliverer, and this victory came by the hand of this woman. Now, this, is a, this story's a really cool picture. It's awesome to think through it a bit. So let's just kind of consider some of the details and what some of the picture is for you and I because it's, yeah, it's a cool story. Remember, Heber and the Kenites, Yael and Heber, husband and wife, they also were under the dominion of Jabin, the Canite. They had a friendly relationship with him. But Heber's household had crossed over to the people of God. They now counted themselves amongst the people of God. And you know that apart from Jesus, you have a king who you serve. Apart from Jesus, you are subject to the oppression of an oppressor who is cruel. 
And you know the reality of death and sin and the lack of victory and his oppression. But thankfully, we have a deliverer who has set us free and we can cross over like Heber the Canaanite into the family of God. This is what this family had done. So here's Yael at her tent and the old master comes. It's the old man. Okay, like it's, this is the spiritual picture. The old man, the man of the flesh comes and he says, give me some water. Give me a drink. Give me a little place to hide in your household. Like just tuck me under the carpet, slide me under the rug, wherever you need me to hide, I will hide. Just give me some water because I need you to give me some life. You know, that that's, this is what sin does. When you cross over to follow Jesus, sin will come and put you in this same situation. Hey, man, just quench my thirst a little. Hide me. Hide me in your tent. Hide me under your rug. It'll be our little secret. All I need is a drink of water, some shelter. And sin is sly and sin is cunning in this way. It says, it'll be our little secret. But we know this. When it comes to sin, little sins do not stay little. <laughs> you know, Little compromises do not stay little compromises. You give in a little, and soon it takes more and more and more, and you're in big trouble. Sisera ran for his life. No wonder he was thirsty. You know, sin is on the run. In your life, if you've crossed over and you're following Jesus, sin is on the run. It is not in the position of power. Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Sin is not in the position of power unless you bring it into the tent, unless you give it a little water to drink, unless you hide it under the carpet. Sisera ran for his life and No wonder he's thirsty and he asks for water. And what does she do? She gives him not water. She gives him milk, which is like I said, that's like the last thing you want to drink when you are parched for thirst. And this is a good picture, church, for us to see how to deal with sin. Sin says, quench my thirst. Give me a drink of water. Let me live. But if we're going to overcome sin and we're going to overcome the flesh and the old man who desires to live on, if we are going to overcome him, we do it by doing this. We give him the milk of the word. 1 Peter 2.2 comes up on the screen here. It says like this, says this, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up in your salvation. We see this over and over again throughout the scripture that milk is a picture of the word of God. Give me a drink. Give me water. Quench my thirst. She says, no, you can have milk. I love this. You know, this is how Jesus dealt with sin and temptation. Never sinned, but Satan came to tempt him tempted him in various ways, and Jesus would say, no, 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 no. It is written. It is written. It is written. The enemy comes and says, give me a drink of water. She gives him milk. Then the enemy says this to her. 
Go to the door of your tent, and I want you to lie to anyone who comes. Anyone who comes by this tent, and if they ask, is there anything in there? You say, no, there's nobody in here. He's saying this, the enemy is saying this, don't let anyone know that I'm here. This is our secret. You cover my tracks, you lie for me. And this is just like sin. Hey, man, it's just our secret. You, me, a little water, I'll hide it. You can hide it in your house. Hide it in your life, in the tent of your life. And just lie about it. Church, we, I want to remind you, don't lie to cover sin. Bring it into the light. Bring it into the light. Open the door, flip back the carpet, and bring it into the light. Confess it to the commander of the Lord's army. That's who came along for her. Who came along? The commander of the Lord's army. She says, I want you to see what's in here. You got to see it. I've killed it, but you need to know. It's here. Yael gave, gave milk instead of water, and instead of standing at the door to lie, she pinned that wicked oppressor to the ground with the hammer and the tent spike. The milk of the word and the hammer of the word. Jeremiah said this on your screen. Is not my word like a fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks rocks in pieces. The word of God is a hammer. And with the hammer of the word, Yael pinned him to the ground with a tent spike. You know that sin is dealt with in the same way. I love this picture. Sin is dealt with in the same way. See, nails were placed. Spikes in the palm of Jesus' hands. And the hammer was raised and Jesus was pinned to the cross. And Jesus paid the price for our sin. Jesus saved us from the power and punishment of sin. Pinned there in our place to that hunk of wood. And because Jesus has been pinned in our place, when we cross over to him, when that old commander comes and knocks at the door of your tent, when sin comes and seeks shelter and seeks refuge and seeks a drink of water, when it seeks its hidden presence, you remind him, I have crossed over like Heber the Canite to the people of God, to the kingdom of God. You will not hide his presence. You will bring it into the light. You give sin the milk of the word. You don't give it water. You apply the hammer of the word of God. You remind him of the spikes that were placed in the hands of your deliverer. This is a great, isn't this a great picture of victory over the old man? And then it says this in verse 24. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. It's like victory. Total victory. The word of the prophet, the miracle working power of God, the milk of the word, the hammer of the word, the nails of the cross, bring it into the light. This is like, these are steps to victory. Now, we're going to just move right on to, into chapter 5 because we're biting off a big chunk in our 
in our Bibles this morning. And so we move from the history to the song of worship, the poem. It says this. Read a good chunk of it here. They began to worship God over this victory. Deborah and Barak wrote a song. Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day, that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly. Bless the Lord. Hear, O kings. Give ear, O princes. To the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, the son of Anath, in the days of Yael, the highways were abandoned. And the travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. When new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. Tell of it. You who ride on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets, you who walk by the way, to the sound of the musicians at, water, at the watering places. There they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. Then down to the gates marched the people of the Lord. Awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake, break out in song. Arise, Barak, lead away your captives, O son of Abinoam. Man, these guys say, we got to praise God for what he's done. I love this picture in verse 11. They said this, to the sound of musicians at watering places. Do you know this is a watering place? Right here. This is a well. This is a well where the people of God gather around the word of God and we worship the Lord. It's like music is important to us to sing his praise. It's not for us to sing about ourselves. We worship God because of the righteous things. He's done. You're good, You're good to me, Lord. What were we singing this morning? The goodness of the Lord. You're pursuing me. He said, I'm going to fly away one day. I've seen the light. It's the glory and the righteousness of the God, of God that we sing about at this watering place. It's just kind of cool to think. You know, we, we call watering holes like bars and pubs kind of get that, <laughs> which this was, but you know, it's still a watering place, but it's way better. We drink living water. Deborah and Barak said, praise the Lord for all he's done for his people. He said, praise God. He gave unity amongst his people. He knit the hearts of the assembly together so that they could be an army. she, She speaks of the conditions in the land that were so terrible, something had to be done. The Lord raised up a mother in Israel. And she says this, it was so bad that highways were abandoned. People were looking for deer paths on the mountainside to like stay away from the enemy, the oppressor. It was so bad, in verse 7, village life had ceased. Sounds like lockdown. Verse 8, so bad, it says that the people of God had chosen new gods and and God had, and, and under the thumb of the oppressor, there was not a shield or a spear that could be found amongst 
40,000 men. There was nobody to fight. And the enemy took over because Israel turned to false gods. And so she says, we have to praise God. He set us free. We have to worship him at the watering places. Sing of his righteousness because now we can walk safely in our villages. We can gather at the wells and we can walk together. Village life can return to peace. And they sing, wake up, wake up, Deborah, wake up, Barak, and attack the enemy. Now let's read on verse 13. Then down marched the remnant of the noble people of the Lord, marched down for me against the mighty. For Ephraim, their route, they marched down into the valley, following you, Benjamin, Benjamin, with your kinsmen. From Makir, marched down with the commanders, and from Zebulon, those who bear the lieutenant's staff. The princes of Issachar came with Deborah, and Issachar, faithful to Barak, into the valley, they rushed at his heels. Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Why, do you, why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the border of Jor- beyond the, the Jordan. And Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat at the coast of the sea, stained by his landings. Zebulon is a people who risk their lives to the death. Naphtali, too, on the heights of the field. They say, we've got to praise God. And one of the things we should praise God for is those who are willing to help in the midst of this battle. Deborah was thankful for those who were willing to offer themselves in service to the Lord. And it's interesting you read this. Ten tribes are mentioned. And we're told that six of the tribes responded to the call of Barak and they joined the army. Zebulun, Issachar, Benjamin, Ephraim, half-tribe of Manasseh, and the men of Naphtali. These were the brave men who came to the help of God's people in the battle that they were in. But at the same time, there were four tribes that didn't show up. Four tribes that didn't do their share in the fight. The tribe of Reuben thought about the call to arms, searched their own hearts, and they decided, eh, we'll look after our own flocks. Rather than join in what God's doing, we'll just look after ourselves. Gilead, which is the other half-tribe of Manasseh, which lived on the other side of the Jordan, felt that the battle was just a little too inconvenient for them. You remember that half-tribe of Manasseh, like when we go back to the book of Joshua, this was the tribe that led the armies of Israel in defeating all of the enemies in the land of promise. And now this new generation of the same tribe said, meh, it's kind of inconvenient to gather with the people of God and to battle with the people of God didn't value their brothers, or recognize their role amongst the tribes. Dan, it says, was busy with his boats, sailboats, (laughs) into boating, into life on the sea. They're like, eh, I was going to go out on my boat today. Asher, it says, they sat on the beach. Like, it actually says that, that they were like sitting on the beach. 
like the weather was good, and why would you go to battle when you can like work on your tent? And they ignored, these tribes ignored the cry and the summons to follow at the heels of Barak to war. And church, this is not unlike what is going on today. You know, it seems like there's like about a 60-40 split going on in the church. I read again this week that they're saying in the next 18 months, one out of five churches is going to close its doors. I'm reading, I, I read again this week that they said 30% of the church will never return. Never. What is going on? What is going on? It's not unlike what's happening in our day. See, some in this story immediately respond to the call of God, and some give it consideration. They say, um, no. Others keep to themselves. They act like nothing's happening. Others act like they've never been called. Church, wake up, Deborah. Wake up, Barak. We're in a battle. We are in a battle. The kingdom of righteousness and light against the kingdom of darkness and evil. We're gathering every night to pray. We're in a battle. We're in a fight right now. And it's amazing to read this, but God gave his people victory and Deborah and Barak, they praised the Lord accordingly. Let's read on. He says this, the kings came, they fought. They fought the kings of Canaan at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They got no spoils of silver. From heaven, the stars fought. From their courses, they fought against Sisera. The torrent, Kishon, swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon, March on my soul with might. Then the loud beat of the horse's hoofs with the galloping, galloping of his steeds. Curse Miraz, says the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants thoroughly because they did not come to the help of the Lord. To the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. For those of you who've been to Israel, I, lo- I love this picture. I just have to point it out. Like, just imagine you're standing at Megiddo. You're looking across the valley of Jezreel. Nazareth is on the far hillside. Mount Tabor is off to your right. The Kishon River is there. This is where this all went down, right? Where Armageddon is going to happen. And it's kind of a cool picture even to think about this, uh, to think God is going to act in this same way at, at the battle of Armageddon when all the nations of the earth come to fight against the Lord. And it says, heaven fought against the enemy. This was a heavenly battle. It just, it wasn't simply physical and fleshly. It was spiritual and heavenly. And heaven fought against the enemy of God's people. And the Lord, in the Kishon River bursted its banks and there was a flash flood and the enemy was swept away. And the Lord gave the army of Israel victory over the chariots of Sisera and King Jabin. And here we read this, that this one town gets cursed. It's a town in in the region of Naphtali, and Barak, the commander of Israel's army here, was of the tribe of Naphtali, and as he went and he called Naphtali, there was one town that didn't respond. Moroz. Moroz refused to send volunteers to help in the battle. 
And you read here, Barak doesn't curse them for it. But it says this, the angel of the Lord did. The angel of the Lord cursed this town for shirking its responsibility to the people of God. They failed uh, to help the people of God, but even more than that, they failed to help and to serve the Lord in the midst of this battle. They're shirkers. And they were cursed by the angel of the Lord because of it. And then we read on, just for the sake of time, we'll keep rocking through here. Then Deborah and Barak thanked God for the courage of this woman, Yael. Let's read about her, verse 24. Most blessed of woman be Yael. That's a tongue twister. The wife of Heber the Kenite of the tent dwelling women most blessed. He asked for what? Hey, women, do you know that you're tent dwelling women? If you serve Jesus, you're a tent dwelling woman. This, this, this life, is, this world is not your home. We're living in tents. She was a tent dwelling woman. Most blessed of women be Yael the wife of Heber the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women most blessed. He asked for water. She gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. She set her hand to the tent peg, her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his, crushed his head. She shattered, his, shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet, he sank. He fell. He lay still. Between her feet, he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell dead. Then it starts to talk about another woman, the mother of this man who's dead, Sisera. Out of the window, she peered. The mother of Sisera wailed through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? Her wisest princesses answer. Indeed, she answers herself. Have they not found and divided the spoil? A womb or two for every man. Spoil of dyed materials for Sisera. Spoil of dyed materials embroidered. Two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck as spoil. Verse 31. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord. But your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. Yael, this woman gets credit for the killing of the leader of the enemy's army. And she crushed his head with the tent peg and the mallet. And as we read here, the, the singer moves from singing about Yael to singing about describing Sisera's death and describing the thought of his mother wondering, where is he? Why is he so long in his coming? Why hasn't he come home from war yet? She had this false hope. She was living for something, hoping for something that was not going to happen. And, and her assumptions are terrible because she says this, my son is probably just out enjoying the spoils of victory. Enjoying the spoils of war. He hasn't returned, she says, because he's probably raping women. That's what that says. Said a woman or two for every man. That's what Sisera was all about and his armies. The, the, and, and you read this, and this is why it's like we need to see how terrible this oppression was. This was like a reign of rape and terror. This was a, this was a reign that for women was brutal, this oppression. 
And the irony of this story is that the man who objectified and abused women died at the hands of a woman. It's kind of the beauty of God's irony, his justice, that that's how he rolls. And Deborah says, so may all your enemies perish, O Lord. May all your enemies perish in such a way, but may your friends be like the sun that rises in its might. I mean, nobody can stop the sun from rising. That's what this is saying. May your friends, Lord, be like the sun. They can't be stopped. You know, I read this, and here's where I take hope. I look around the world, and church, we need to be reminded of this over and over and over again. King Jesus is going to triumph over evil. King Jesus is going to triumph over injustice, over unrighteousness, over wickedness. King Jesus is going to triumph over oppression. He is going to triumph over women uh, who experience being objectified and the men who do such things. Jesus is going to triumph and Jesus is going to bring justice and righteousness to this world. Evil's day, it's coming. The clock is ticking. Thank God. Judgment on evil is coming. This is the hope of justice, that those who love the Lord and serve the Lord will be vindicated. And those who hate the Lord we see here, they're going to be judged. And so what this text tells us, and just the thought that I want to leave us with is just this simple. Church, we have to turn from evil. We have to turn from our sin. We can't hide it in the tents of our life. And forgiveness is ready and available for all who would come to Jesus. If you're watching online or even here with us this morning and you don't know Jesus, look at you can cross over from one kingdom into the other. Jesus has made the way. But the way is by this route. You have to come to Jesus. No one comes into the kingdom of heaven except through Jesus. And Jesus said, the way you come is this, is that you repent of your sin and you turn from it and you turn in faith to him. You give your life to him. Do you know that Jesus has already bore the spikes that you deserve? That the scripture tells us that the punishment of sin is death, that every man is destined to die once, but Jesus has bore the spikes for us. He's borne the punishment. And if we'll put our faith and trust in him, we can cross over from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of his son. But you must repent of sin and turn to Jesus. There is a judgment coming upon the evil in this world. But there is a hope for justice. And it's in Jesus. And the sun will rise. The sun will come. And he will not be stopped. Amen.